0: Welcome to the Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in Hammersmith, West London, with my colleague Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining <laughs> us on Zoom from the West Country is RBP's Archivist-in-Chief, Mark Pringle. Hey, hey, Barney. And finally, beamed across the Atlantic from upstate New York is our very special guest, Andy Schwartz. Hi, Andy.
1: Hello, Barney. Hello, Mark. Hello, Jasper. Hi. Hi.
0: Andy joins us to discuss all that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism. So if you enjoy this episode, please follow us and review the episode. We're going to talk about New York Rocker, Andy, the monthly music magazine that you edited from 1977 till 1982. Um, Plus, we'll follow your career through to Epic Records. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll also hear clips from a 1977 audio interview with Willie DeVille, whose band were a fixture on the CBGB scene that New York Rocker was born out of and covered. Andy, you grew up in the suburbs of Westchester County, but frequently came into Manhattan to see the great bands of the late 60s. What are your like formative musical memories of that period?
1: Well, Bonnie, I have to say that I became aware of rock and roll just before the arrival of the Beatles, who broke through in this country in February of 64. So I remember, you know, some of the early records to which I was exposed at the age of 10 or 11 were records by the Drifters, uh, Roy Orbison, various vocal groups, you know. And in fact, the first group that I remember seeing live a rock and roll group, was a black group, black vocal group from Brooklyn. Eugene Pitt and the Jive Five made great records, including What Time Is It?, which Marshall Crenshaw later recorded. And they headlined a show in the high school gymnasium when I was uh, 13 or 14. (laughs) In fact, there was a band on the bill with them that was a Westchester County kind of Stones clone band. (laughs) And there were actually girls like leaping over the monitors or there wasn't much of a stage really in this gym but i remember like girls like grabbing at the lead singer the jive five (laughs) also did something where they had a fake fight on stage Uh, (laughs) between two like a guy would like a a guy commandeered the mic and maybe held a long impressive operatic note and the other guy seemed to get increasingly annoyed and then suddenly tried to like grab it away from him. And it was like a really frightening moment, (laughs) you know, when I was 13 or 14, Oh my God, what's happening here. Then of course, (laughs) later on, I saw the Dells do the same routine. Oh, it's just a routine. Oh, (laughs) So, you know, the bands that you're probably thinking of, Bonnie, I saw mostly at Bill Graham's Fillmore East, which including starting with the opening weekend in February or March of 68, the opening night Bill or weekend Bill was Big Brother and the Holding Company, Albert King and Tim Buckley. Also at Fillmore East, I saw The Grateful Dead. I saw Moby Grape. I saw The Fugs. I saw Led Zeppelin supporting Iron Butterfly. <laughs> a lot of people left before Iron Butterfly came on.
2: The literally heavy metal <laughs> double bill. Yeah, yes, heavy metal exactly. double bill.
1: Iron Bef- and lead. <laughs> before it became, my dad remembered that theater as the Lowe's Commodore. It was like a movie palace on Second yes. Avenue at 6th Street, between 6th and 7th Streets. And before it was the. Fillmore East, it had been called the Village Theater and the future manager of Talking Heads, Gary Kerfirst, who was then a college undergraduate, was promoting shows there where I saw Chuck Berry headline. I saw The Doors and at least one other show. I saw the Jimi Hendrix experience at Hunter College. I saw Cream at Hunter College. Just a, you know, a bunch of gigs around this in this period when I... But, in my last, say, three years of high school. Fantastic stuff.
0: What was the best of those shows in your memory?
1: The Doors, the second time, the first time I saw The Doors was a multi-artist bill in June of 67 at the Village Theatre. This was a concert celebrating the first year of the progressive FM radio station, WORFM. And they were on the bill with the blues project, Janice Ian, Richie Havens, and perhaps one other act and that was that was good but the second time they headlined at the village theater on their own and that was really galvanizing and gripping that was really a a powerful performance They were supported that night by the Vagrants from Long Island featuring Leslie Mm -hmm. West, who used a bubble machine on stage and closed with a long jam on the theme from the film Exodus.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Why not?
1: (laughs) It was also about 90 degrees in the theater on a September night. And I remember being very concerned that Leslie West, who, you know, weighed like 300 pounds <laughs> and was wearing this long, heavy brown suede coat or cape, I was very concerned that he might have a heart attack or a stroke under these, these conditions, you know, given the temperature indoors. <laughs> so you know, these were some of, the, some of the gigs that I saw in, in my formative years in New York. My sister, who was about a year and a half behind me and was one year behind me in school, saw a great many more shows at the Fillmore East because at that time her boyfriend was purchasing tickets. Sometimes he was going for like the early and late shows both nights. She saw all four sets really? by the act. And she saw Hendrix. I think even actually sitting in maybe with Sly and the Family Stone. Wow, she saw Jeez. you know she saw, she she saw the Mothers of Invention and, and quite a few others that, that right. I that I may have missed.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah.
1: So the next kind of
0: phase of your musical journey maybe is is like so by the early seventies you're studying at the University of Minnesota.
1: I have to remen- I have to mention one thing I did for my freshman year. I went to a small liberal arts college in southern Wisconsin called Beloit College. And the only thing I want to mention about my one year at Beloit College was that it was the site of the first dedicated multi-day blues festival in the U.S. Not a blues night or a blues day at a jazz festival or a pop festival, but a dedicated blues festival. It was called the Wisconsin Delta Blues Festival, and that's where I got – at 18, that's where I got to see Booker White, Fred McDowell, Sunhouse, wow. J.B. Wow. Hutto, Reverend Robert Wilkins, oh, yeah, yeah, if you can believe that, and quite a few others, you know, up close and personal in this college setting. Great. How wonderful. How wonderful. So, So following that, you went to the University of Minnesota, correct? I did I did move to Minneapolis uh for reasons I won't get into now it you know was a pretty aimless period of my life at the age of 21 and I did enroll at university there and I attended in a sporadic fashion for a couple of years <laughs> I, I also the most, perhaps more significantly for our purposes I also played in a bar band I played guitar and sang in a band that only played other people's songs. I also worked in a in perhaps the leading indie record shop in Minneapolis, St. Paul, or folk joke opus, named for two cult albums by Skip Spence and Roy Harper. And you also yeah. wrote
0: for you you wrote your first like music pieces, right? Your first yes, for the movies. University
1: the University of Minnesota Daily. At that time, the University of Minnesota had like thirty-five thousand undergrads and graduate students on the Twin Cities campuses. And they had a daily paper. I submitted some stuff and you know, I began contributing to the university paper. I went to a lot of gigs, started getting free records and concert tickets, and I liked that. Then there were a couple of different competing so-called alternative weeklies in Minneapolis, St. Paul. One was called City Pages, I wrote for them. Mm-hmm. And later on, there was one called Metropolis that was created by a group of people who who had been friends and as undergraduates at Harvard. They were all Harvard grads. Oh. And they actually scouted markets and cities around the U.S. and settled on Minneapolis-St. Paul as a place to launch their concept of an alternative weekly, which was a paper called Metropolis. It lasted maybe a year and a half or two years. And I, that's where I had a regular column to pretty much cover what I wanted to cover, including sort of the nascent or the earliest stirrings of the punk scene in, in Minneapolis-St. Paul.
0: Well, my understanding is that you actually saw like bands like Ramones and Talking Heads. You probably saw them for the first time at in-store performances
1: in, in that record store. Is that correct? The shop didn't host the performances. Okay, Peep, the, the the bands would come to mingle, sign records, okay, have pictures taken, and so forth. But I did see the but the the New York bands, the so-called CBGB bands. Yeah. I either saw on periodic visits to my family in New okay. York. You know, when I would come into the city and go to CBGB or go to Max's or Mother's, which was on Twenty Third Street, it was the first place I saw. Talking Heads is a three piece and the gigs in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the, the Ramones, the first time the Ramones played, they, it was like a sports bar. You know, it was not even a place anyone remembered going to see live music. You know, we probably only had cover bands that, that you know, people like myself weren't really interested in, but, you know, it did. And I and I was somewhat in, involved in the er, establishment of the first punk new wave club in Minneapolis, which was called Jay's Longhorn. It had been like a businessman's restaurant in downtown Minneapolis. So when you moved back
0: to New York City from the University of Minnesota, you already were aware of what was happening there in terms of clubs like CBG.
1: I was, and I was getting what you might call the teenage news from New York Rocker, which had been launched in the spring of February 1976 by Alan Betrock. And he and I became acquainted long distance because the shop where I worked, Orpho Opus, stopped the magazine along with the British weeklies and other publications like Let It Rock and so on. Right. And Alan had published two fanzines prior to launching New York Rocker. I don't have a copy of the first one handy. That was called Jams, J-A-M-Z. Quite rare. I think there were perhaps five issues in all. But okay. that was followed by a somewhat more professionalized publication, and that was called The Rock Marketplace. Yeah. And this sample issue features Ellie Greenwich on the cover. There's an in-depth interview with Ellie. And it's a very interest. this is, of course, pre, pre-CBGB, pre, well, or almost sort of overlapping with the, with the very early, earliest shows at CBGB but really oriented towards uh, 60s rock and sort of glitter and glam and the and groups that were coming out of the UK and not really getting a look in in the US for the most part. So looking through this issue, I saw reviews of singles and albums by Cockney Rebel or Pilot or Roy Wood. You know, I don't really, thinking on it now, I don't know what other... American publications in you know 1974 75 you would have or 75 76 you would have seen these groups covered you know there's a feature called who is tony rivers and the castaways certainly a uh, good, good, good good question, question. next question a, a,
0: a question that's never fully been answered <laughs> <laughs> go
1: So that that was the Rock
0: Marketplace. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I think we might have one issue of those. We've got a lot of New York Rockers. I don't think we've got any jamses. We've got, we, we, we... We
3: got some stuff from jams on the site, so I don't know how yeah, we've that. Yeah, but... okay,
0: okay. Tell us about Alan. Tell us about Alan Betrock who edited New York Rocker for uh, like 11 issues before you took over as editor. Who You know,
1: who was he? What kind of a guy was he? He grew up... In a, work, a working-to-middle-class family, I think he was born in Brooklyn. They moved to Queens, and his father was a civil servant. His mother, I believe, was a school teacher. He had an older brother, Wayne, whom I can now say he did not get on with and was a very different kind of person. And I think that he was always very much in love with rock and roll and popular culture from an early age. He went to the Woodstock festival and I have somewhere on a disc his silent home movie footage from Woodstock. Fantastic. That he wow. that he took. Oh. Wow. So he also was writing for, I I'm I'm sure he had reviews published in some publications not not Rolling Stone and perhaps not Cream but maybe Fusion Phonograph record. We've, we've phonograph got a number record.
0: of his phonograph record pieces on the site, going back to 73.
1: I remember having a conversation many years ago with a mutual friend who remarked to me, I don't think he ever had a job. <laughs> <laughs> I myself only remember him working for Bleak. F- in the aftermath of the changeover at New York Rocker, I remember him going to work at Bleaker Bob's record shop. It didn't seem to last more than a couple of months. Okay. But he always... He was always of an independent mind he, he 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 did what he wanted to do and pursued those things that were you know his that were his deeply felt interests you know mm, mm. and he was a very he was a very gentle kind of laid-back and self-effacing person he wasn't really interested in building up his own brand so to speak and he was a and a, and a good friend to myself and many others
0: I mean, given how important New York Rocker was in terms of, I mean, you say in, in this lovely piece you wrote for the Village Voice, which is a tribute to, to Alan, you make the point that, that the Rocker sort of made stars of all the, you know, the, the acts that we know about from Paddy Smith to Richard Hell to Talking Heads. you know, long, long before anyone really knew about them, they were on the cover of the Rocker, right? It just, This scene has been kind of gone over and over so many times. So just to talk to someone who was really, like, right there and in the kind of epicentre of it, how do you look back now on CBGB in particular and that very small but obviously incredibly influential scene that exploded there?
1: It's really a consistent source of amazement to me how it continues to reverberate down through the decades yeah yeah yes and to influence people it not only musicians but like in other sort of related fields
0: yeah
1: fashion you know oh, yes. yes yes movies yeah yeah exactly and how it became you know it's it's really interesting to think of like the two sides of the coin, so to speak, that little club and that small scene incubated major careers, whether you're talking about Deborah Harry or David Byrne. And then the other side of it is all these bands and all of these musicians, and in many cases, non-musicians who passed through it, you know, who may have gone on to completely different fields and completely different kinds of careers But they were on that same stage, you know, once upon a time. They were on that same stage. So I think it really, it's really a tribute to Hilly that he just let people do their thing. You know, he didn't impose, he brought in and built one of the best club sound systems I have ever heard. And he then just let people do their thing. And he did it without any idea of like a preconceived format or a target audience that he was trying to, you know, bring in, you know, anything like that, Mm -hmm. you know, him. And I have to also mention still with us very much. Peter Crowley at Max's who initially when he started there was booking blues bands. He had Howlin' Wolf, he had James Cotton, you know, yeah, before, country, he, country began, as well. before yeah. he began booking the New York bands and the out-of-towners like Devo or perugu and, and others. I mean, we never saw
0: rocker here. I don't think, Mark, you wouldn't have seen New York rocker here in no. the 70s, would you? No. I mean, we, 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 you didn't I mean, see it anyway. Con-
3: it's conceivable that a couple of news agents in Old Compton
1: Street may have sold it, but otherwise it was an invisible thing here in England. We were very fortunate to have some prominent con- and Fairly regular contributors from the U.K. I think Simon Frith wrote a number Mm -hmm. of pieces. I think John Savage wrote at least a few things. And one of our more regular contributors was a fellow I've completely lost touch with, Ian Wood of Manchester. Who, whose copy was accompanied by the excellent photographs of Kevin Cummins. Right. Oh, right. Yeah, fascinating.
2: So what was, just maybe this is going back a step, but what was the mission statement of New York Rocker, and what was it that attracted you to that to begin with?
1: Well, Jasper, I think it really began as a per- very personal project of Alan Betrock, who on a night when there were 12 people to see the Ramones or Blondie at CBGB, he would have been one of them right? You know, he really would have been one of them. He really believed that these bands had enormous artistic potential, as well as commercial potential. He believed that what they were doing was as important as anything being played on radio or featured in Rolling Stone. You know, he really was a a cheerleader uh, for the scene. Isn't it also sort of
3: fair to say that I mean, at that point, rock was becoming more and more bloated the medium sized halls the likes of the Fillmore, had all long closed people were playing Madison Square Garden or bigger It had become bloated and so there was a in the same way as actually in, in London in 1975, 76, mm. there was a, there was a need for the same thing there was you know we've got to get back to something which is more basic and straightforward I think that's true
1: mark I think that that was that was a that was the the element, the aspect that he was trying to encourage right. with the creation of New York rocker. Right. And he was mm-hmm. also opening up the pages to people who had not already been writing about mu- about pop for the village voice or for Rolling Stone. You know, he brought in a, a new cadre of photographers, illustrators mm-hmm. and, and, and writers. Just to jump forward to early seventy-eight,
0: one of the pieces that we have on RBP by Bertruc is is called a New York Vision. You will remember this because I think you included it with your tribute in the Voice. And he's already sounding quite jaded about the whole CBGB scene. There's this, this this wonderful paragraph which goes, "And now what's left is a bunch of all-knowing robots going through the motions, caught up by all the tons of fucking bullshit, plus hype, plus promo." Plus interviews, plus leisure suits, plus free record company cocaine, plus parties, plus pictures, plus hotels, (laughs) plus airplanes, plus groupies, plus publicity (laughs) agents, plus media, plus just total, complete, ridiculously energy destroying bullshit. So
1: that's already, that's only like two years after New York Rocker launched. There's a good deal of truth in that statement, but you got to remember that that was written by someone who had already been hospitalized for a chronic depression. Right. And who struggled with that almost as, you know, all of his adult life. And, you know, that when, when you're dealing with a condition like that, that can really like change your outlook on, on the world at large yes. from week to week and year to year, you know? Yeah, I
0: mean, the, the piece isn't all like that, by the way, but uh, the, the, that paragraph of the jumped out at me. I mean, the, the,
3: there is a truth that all of these scenes
0: lasted a very short period of time. I mean,
3: English punk, you're talking about two years frankly. You know, post-punk, two, three years. No Wave, two, three years. You know, things came and went very quickly indeed before the rock companies moved in and ossified the whole scene again in, in the mid-80s.
0: Yeah. I mean, interestingly, the new audio interview this week rather echoes that paragraph I just read out. Mark, tell us, um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about about this interview, yeah, yeah, th- th- this
3: is Mark Bleisner under his radio Pete nom de plume, interviewing Willie DeVille, DeVille, in May 1977 on the phone from Boulder or wherever he Bleisner was based. He talks about his New York youth. He talks about the, the current New York rock scene and the meaning of the word punk. He goes. To Sumlick's been remarkably rude about scene like Danny Fields and Lisa Robinson. He's marvellously rude about the Ramones. And he talks about CBGBs. So let's have a listen to this clip about CBGBs. The
4: dogs they rub in the room of the bags, And I can't help thinking that I blew it tonight. I go to CBGBs very rarely, anybody very rarely well, no, I can't do that because that'll hurt Philly's business. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you the truth, it's not the same people there who were there two years ago. You will not find that. It's more like a scene maker kind of thing, you think, no? Yeah, like nobody who really invented the scene, like you'll never see that. I mean, you will on rare, on rare occasions. Like if I or like, say like, uh, I don't know, you know, anybody, you know, any of the people who have albums out now walk in there, I mean, heads totally turn around, you know what I mean, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, go down there too much, you know, yeah. but, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's all different people down there, it's not the same people at all. But when you around.
3: This is all in in the light of his first album has just come out. He's fantastically rude about rock critics in it. We won't play a clip, but it's a really interesting bit where he lays into them. And given the fact that, actually, I think they got pretty good press, Minkedville, this feels pretty churlish to me. But he he talks about the album, and, and Jack Nitsky... And their relationship and about how Jack would come round to his, his his apartment and they'd go through all the records and be saying, You like this record, I love this record, and so on and so forth. Great bonding moment. Let's have a listen to this the clear.
4: All they know is I care. The guy the guy who did the record with Jack needs to care. Yeah awful lot. He cares about anything he does and me. That's one thing I really he can't do something unless he really digs it. He's really gotta dig it in order to do it. And, you know, he, he that's all he's got going for him is that he really cares, you know. He could say, you know, like the thing is, he could say shit, um, um, um,
0: You're right, Mark. I think it's ironic that Willie's so scornful towards rock critics, given that Mink DeVille was was almost like a sort of rock critic's wet dream. Absolutely, and in fact, you know, he owed everything to to Ben Edmonds, who'd been a cream writer and who was his A and R man at Capitol, and yet he's so he's so savage towards rock writers. I didn't like him. Listening to this
3: interview, mm. I really didn't like the man.
0: Mm. I mean, it's an interesting, in, in this review, Andy, that you wrote for The Rocker after seeing uh, Mink DeVille in late 77, I think late 77 at uh, NYU, you make, you make this point, which is really interesting. There comes a sneaking sense that Willie is singing not to his audience, but to himself, all wrapped up in street corner, cool and carefully controlled passion. I mean, your review is sort of favorable, but a little bit skeptical. As to the whole kind of Willie DeVille shtick, what do you think now, all these years later, when you look back on Mink DeVille's, like, place in the CBGB firmament, and and the whole Willie DeVille sort of slightly phony persona that he adopted? What, 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 how do you remember that?
1: Well, it just it's it's tricky, you know. He was, he was a very good singer. Yes, he was I no, agree. He was no Benny King. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, though he and thought he was, yeah. I have long felt that he was a good artist who made some very good to excellent records. I did not then and would not now put him in the, you know, uppermost ranks or rank of the bands and and talents that emerged from that period and that scene. Absolutely. You know, I mean, he... he in this interview with Mark Blaisner, who I believe also contributed to New York Rock, he made yes, a he sentence yes. of Colorado scene reports. In this interview, Mark Pringle indicates that he puts down the Ramones.
3: Yes. He yeah. puts
1: down the Ramones. You know what? Willie DeVille made some good records and played a lot of gigs. The Ramones cleaved history. He absolutely. <laughs> I,
3: and the other thing is that he was a reactionary. All his records were looking back, looking back, looking back, while people like television... Talking Heads, Blondie even, were looking
0: forward to, and, and looking at new new ways of doing things. Yeah. I mean, the backstory story is, is interesting in that, you know, he's, he's in San Francisco and he sees this ad for auditions at CBGB and they pile into their van and drive the whole way across back to the East Coast and audition, I guess, for, for Hilly or for someone at CBGB. And then they become one of the sort of house bands there. But they're never really a part of what's happening and the kind of innovations taking place, are they? I mean, as you say, Mark, they're very, very sort of anchored in this sort of ersatz idea of kind of New York street corner R yeah. and B, yeah. and the sort of Hispanic. Thing. I don't even know. I don't think he was. He kind of was pretended to be Hispanic. I don't think he was Hispanic at all, was he? Do you know whether he was that? No, I mean, it was it was, it was kind of bullshit, but. I mean, I do think some of the records are great, as you say. Uh, the, the second one was produced by Mark Knopfler,
3: and a friend of mine drummed on it. My friend of mine being a Wickhamist, a member <laughs> of
2: Winchester School. So the street <laughs> credibility of Winchester School and Mark Knopfler. <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, from a second-hand viewpoint, or maybe maybe it's more of a third-hand viewpoint since it's via various writers, one kind of gets the sense of him wanting to be cool actually trying to be cool yeah which is kind of the opposite of of a band like talking heads who you know were trying to be uncool almost and therefore were actually very cool
0: yes that's a good point <laughs> you know i
2: mean you, you you watch videos of talking heads playing at cbgbs and they've got short hair and they're wearing collared shirts and like they're not they don't look cool in the parlance of the time right they're not cool looking by that standard which actually is what makes them cool. That's the perception that I have of it. And I think that, you know, he seems to be trying a bit too hard, basically.
1: I was, <laughs> I was pleased to hear Willie give his props to Jack Nietzsche. You know, yeah. there, are all these peop- there are all these people, including Spectre himself, the songwriters like Man and Wild, Goffin and King, and perhaps even Hal Blaine and people in the Wrecking Crew who are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but not Jack Nietzsche. You know Nietzsche's never yep. had. Now there in this past year, there was a documentary released on Willie Deville, feature-length film. You know there are multiple books about Spectre. Mm. There are individual autobiographies by yep. Ronnie, by Darlene Love, and so on and so forth. You know, this, Jack Nietzsche is kind it, today is kind of a forgotten figure, and Jack Nietzsche was like a genius. Yeah, yeah. In many ways, I mean, not, I not think, a word that I apply liberally or frequently.
0: And such a fascinating career, but but I mean, like Willie himself, a cantankerous guy. I mean, I think he he uh, alienated so many people. He was a damaged dude, wasn't he? I think, and so maybe maybe that's why he hasn't got his props. But I mean, I think anyone would say that. Those Spectre records, for example, and some of the Neil Young records, you know, would just not be the same without without Nietzsche. So I think it's it's, it's interesting that he, you know, he plays, he, it, it literally like Ben Edmonds calls him up and says, can I just play you a couple of demos from this, this band, Mink DeVille? And Nietzsche goes, you know, when do we start? That's partly the problem,
3: in a sense, what we were talking yeah. about earlier, is he recognised what the music was going to be like because it had been done by yeah. him.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a really fair point. And, I mean, Doc Pomus reacted to Willie in the same way. He saw Mink Deville, and it was kind of like this band had been kind of created for him because he hadn't heard that sort of New York soul music for such a long time, right? And then they write together. I mean, he he's had a lot of... You know, he died in 2009 of pancreatic cancer, Willie DeVille. But he'd had, you know, quite a lot of people, including Bob Dylan, say really nice things about him. I mean, he was rated quite highly by, by some kind of gigantic figures. But, I mean, as you say, I mean, now I don't know really what – I don't think Mink DeVille ever, as you say, they're never going to be kind of – no one's going to talk about them in the context of the Ramones or Talking Heads – Television. Or, or Patty Smith. Yeah, I think that's right. Let's move on to, so what happened after New York Rocker? See, so you, you were a freelance writer in the 80s. I was. I got
1: a good story for you about good. the <laughs> last days of New York Rocker. <laughs> I'm in the office with two of the women that worked for me at the time. They were still holding on. There was still some hope that we might somehow find the money to print another issue because another issue had been laid out and produced. Okay. That was that was number 55 and it never made it to the printer. And we're in the office in this shabby loft building on what of course now is a very upscale section of 5th Avenue between 21st and 22nd Streets. It was just one big room, and my desk was directly opposite these doors, the two doors that opened up into the office. There was no security. There was no no guard in the lobby of this building. You could walk right up one flight of steps, be on the landing, open the door, and there I was across the room. And we had had visits from the Go-Go's, the Lords of the New Church, Richard <laughs> Lloyd. So, you know what I mean? People would just come in, announced or otherwise. So I'm sitting at my desk, and the door's open, and this guy walks in, walks in a tall man in jeans and a baseball cap with a kerchief over his face, and he's holding a pistol. Oh, God. And I said, hey, man, who sent you? thinking it was like a promotional stunt. Oh, my God. (laughs) And he said, no, this ain't no joke. This is a stick-up. He comes in. He's got this gun. The whole thing seemed so weird. I just thought, like, okay, no one's actually going to get shot here. This is, like, too weird. And it was also the first time I'd been robbed at gunpoint. And And he makes us undress. The three of us down to our undies and lie on the floor, which, of course, hadn't been mopped in two years. That was really disgusting. <laughs> and his accomplice, this woman, comes in and begins rummaging through the desk drawers. And I actually hear her say, there's got to be some money here somewhere. <laughs> and I, in that moment, I thought to myself, you know, you've been doing this almost five years and there isn't anything to rob there's <laughs> a, oh, a message here a,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you mean if that had been you'd have carried on <laughs> at, this, at this exact moment another woman comes in Carol Costa who worked at CBGB at the time I think she was booking and she come, walks in on the scene and I think oh. she had to lie down on the floor Wow. <laughs> they they took some pieces of jewelry from the women and whatever few dollars I may have had in my pockets and they left. We got up and brushed ourselves off and called the cops. Cops show up. The detective sits down and and asks me for the details. He goes, okay, well, thank you, Mr. Schwartz. We'll be in touch. I said, officer, just one more question. I said, why'd they make us undress? And he looked at me like I was seven years old. And he goes, so you wouldn't run after them?
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. That's the end of New York Rocker. It was. Right. On an on a, on a almost comic note that fortunately ended without anyone getting hurt. Or oh, anyone quite. getting arrested, I should add. <laughs> of course.
0: Of course. Oh, my. Oh, my. Wow. Well, So, so, so. Some years later, you end up as the director of editorial services at Epic Records. And, and you do all these incredible like reissues and liner notes and stuff. And you
1: work with everybody from the Allman Brothers to Celine Dion. Tell us about that. There was also <laughs> a period, Barney, of perhaps two years where I tried my hand at management. Huh. And I managed, okay. I managed two bands. That one one from New Jersey, one from New York. The one from New York was called Beat Rodeo. It was fronted by an old friend of mine from Minneapolis, the singer and songwriter, guitar player, Steve Almas. A very good band in a kind of country-flavored, country country-folk-rock-flavored rock and roll style. I did manage to get them signed to IRS Records through Miles mm-hmm. Copeland. They did make two albums with either the first or the second with Richard Goderer producing. And they did tour the U.S. and Europe, went to Europe with them. My first experience of continental Europe, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. And, you know, like like most groups and most records, it didn't sell. And uh, eventually the group disbanded. Of course, the group that I sort of relinquished after a period of a few months to focus on Beat Rodeo were the Smithereens, no. who wound up who wound up with like three gold albums signing to Capitol through you know a complex chain of deals but who and who continue to the to the present day even after the death of their principal songwriter and lead singer Pat Denisio yeah. they carry on touring with alternating front men in the persons of Robin Wilson from Gin Blossoms or Marshall Crenshaw nice. right interesting
4: I used to travel in the shadows and live the and walk up
0: to you. So how did the Epic Records gig
1: come about, Andy? I had been working on retainer for the press department of the label for about two years, beginning in eighty-six or thereabouts, you know? I was brought in by the legendary Susan Blonde. She was then the head of the uh, press department for Epic Records before she left to strike out on her own, make her own firm. So I was already a familiar figure around the office had already you know written countless bios and press releases as a as a freelancer, at a certain point, they decided to the department and the company decided to recreate this position called Director of Editorial Services, which had existed and then been eliminated and now was being, you know, revived. And uh, I was sort of the natural candidate for this, and I signed on in 1988, which which, to what proved to be my first and only full-time corporate employment. And what are the kind of high – I mean,
0: I know you were quite close to the Allman Brothers Band in that time. Any, like, memories of, of working with them that stick out?
1: Well, you know, as far as like this sort of more mundane tasks, like my interviewing a band member or two for the purposes of a bio or press release, this was usually left to Butch Trucks, perhaps Warren Haynes. It was the kind of thing that Greg Allman and Dickie Betts preferred not to do if they didn't have to, uh, having done that kind of chore for so many years. I did see some great gigs including Jones Beach Theater out on Long Island on the day day that the news came of the death of Jerry Garcia. It was very memorable and a rare thing to experience a kind of a sense of mourning shared by audience and band that I saw that night, that I was part of that night. Whatever anybody thinks of Jerry Garcia or, for that matter, the Allman Brothers Band, That was a pretty, you know, singular and and very moving uh, night of music. I'm very fond of both as it happens. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, you know, in the course of duty, I mean, I did at least sort of shake hands or have a chat with like all of these people, whether it was Alice Cooper, Celine Dion, her manager husband, René Angelil, intriguing figure. You know, it was said that he had racked up enormous gambling debts in Vegas that led to his wife becoming, you know, coming under contract to appear year after year in these extended residencies at one of the casinos. <laughs> I mean, all the, uh, Rage Against the Machine, Pearl Jam. I don't think Eddie Vedder had done an interview in his life prior to the interview he did with me for the first bio for okay. Pearl Jam's first album.
0: Okay, great.
1: Living Color with Vernon Reed. Yeah, yeah. You know, just all these groups and all these artists. Yeah. Easy e Fantastic. Very, wow. very interesting and A varied collection,
0: mixture, yeah. of collection. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. From Rage
1: <laughs> to Celine Dion. <laughs> I was having a lot of trouble getting Easy e on the phone for this brief interview for this bio. And I, I remember calling up, N.W.A.'s manager, the legendary Jerry Jerry Heller Heller. in L.A., you know, and, you know, he was pretty he was pretty gruff getting on the phone. (laughs) And when I asked him for his help with this, he goes he threatened. He goes, I'm going to I'm going to come out there to New York. If you call me about this one more time, I'm going to come out there and cut your balls off. (laughs) So that was the last time I tried to call Jerry Heller. Oh, you didn't try again,
2: then? I'm surprised.
4: Coward, (laughs) Easy as his name and the boy's coming. Straight out of Compton. It's a brother that'll smother your mother. And make your sister think I love her. Dangerous motherfucking raising Hell, and never ever get caught.
0: Maybe the last thing, just to talk about briefly, Andy, is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because I know you were essentially looking after the program for a few years, and Alan Betrock had preceded you in that role. How do you look back from you know from this vantage point on on the Rock Hall? I mean, given all the you know controversy and uh, ill feelings, and you know, there's there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation around the Rock Hall. And I wonder how you kind of stand on all that now. When
1: I look back on the issues of the program that I produced, which were only distributed to the attendees, and I don't think any, if little, if any of the content was ever posted to the Rock Hall's website. And that includes essays by people like Nick Toshes and and others, you know, that were included that I assigned and and edited for these programs. I'm very proud of the work that I did on the program. I will also say that the event became something very different once it was televised. Initially, as an invitation-only event to the Waldorf Grand Ballroom in New York, it was really, like, unpredictable and you sometimes had this feeling that the artist on stage accepting the award could clearly see a guy at table five that he knew owed him a million dollars. <laughs> or, you, you know, you got that feeling. Also, I will say that people who deride the rock hall, who consider it of no consequence and no importance, they do have one point. Which is that it is based predicated on a so-called great man of history theory about popular music and about the rise of rock and roll, is not which is the opposite of what all of us I think really perceive and understand, that out of the many came the few, but that could not have existed without the unsung, unheard, forgotten. Hordes, you know, sure. of whatever period, whatever time period, or whatever stylistic genre, or or you know, you're talking about in the in the history of the music. The mm. other thing is uh, another thing I have to mention is that there have always been people who said that such and such kind of music, quote, wasn't rock and roll. And, yeah, and therefore Donna Summer or the OJ's yeah, or this yeah. or that should not be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame but what i always remember is that for amit that Erdogan was really the guiding hand and the you know the the reason that if its existence can be attributed to one person that person would be amit and amit well remembered what american and popular music was like before rock and roll of any kind yeah, yeah, okay yeah. before the name rock and roll became popularized. So everything that came after, like that historical marker, let you which you could put with the rise of a, a Louis Jordan in the mid late Absolutely. 40s, perhaps Absolutely. right. Everything that came after that, in his view, that was rock and roll. Mm-hmm. You you can put it in quotes or not, you know. But what it what he knew and remembered very clearly what it wasn't. Well, and rock, and rock and roll was an old rhythm and blues
0: piece of language construction anyway, right? I mean, it was it, way before Elvis, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee yeah. Lewis, rocking and, rock and, and rolling was... But yeah.
3: every year, when it comes around time for the nominations, in my Facebook pages with all my friends, particularly of the American music writers who I'm friends with on Facebook, you get the same argument. That's not rock. That hasn't got guitars. Well, that's no, what no one says, but uh, what really meaning is that's black. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a big element of that in that. It's a racist trope.
1: There's one other thing I would mention. If induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame didn't mean anything to John Lydon and the Pistols, or it didn't mean anything to Van Morrison, who didn't show up for his mm-hmm. induction, okay, and so on down the list. I can tell you it meant a great deal or seemed to mean a lot to Hank Ballard. Right. It seemed to mean a great deal to Eddie Cochran's mom who (laughs) accepted his award 25 years after the death of her son. Right. You know, it seemed to mean a great deal to, you know, these people. Yeah, yeah. You know, if only for their sake, that's why I continue to attach uh, some value to the induction process. As flawed and limited as it may be, you know. Yeah, yeah. Also, I've really I've really enjoyed my visits to the museum. It's probably been twenty years since I was there, but I did see some outstanding exhibitions, including a psychedelic show that was really good, and an exhibition of Stuart Sutcliffe's artwork curated by his late sister Pauline. Right. That was that really gave me a a, a much more complete and vivid picture of him as an as a person and as an artist than I had ever had before.
2: Sure. I'd be interested to hear your perspective as someone who you know was previously involved in in that project. I mean a couple of months ago we had Evelyn McDonnell on the podcast who has an ongoing project to track how many women are inducted into the into the rock and roll of fame and the numbers aren't Great, um, by which to say, there. I think it's. I think she said it was something like eight percent or some, something along those lines. And I was just wondering what you think the Rock Hall can should do, you know, going forward to address
1: all of the sort of swirling maelstrom of criticism that it's facing. I don't know, Jasper. I've been pretty. I'm, although I'm still a voter. I'm I've never been part of the nominating committee, which is a separate and much smaller entity Mm -hmm. than the voting roster or the voting rolls. And I've I I don't know. I don't know if I have a a ready answer for that, for that question, which is of course sort of multiple questions in one, of course, you know, (laughs) but I do, you know, I have some memorable moments from those events. Like I say, especially before it became a telecast, I mean, People won't necessarily remember, but one of those uh, ceremonies took place on the night that George W. Bush announced the invasion of Iraq in 1990 or 91. The evening began with President Bush's speech announcing the U.S. invasion of Iraq on the giant video screen in the Waldorf Grand Ballroom, you know, and that night the impressions were inducted. And I rem- distinctly remember Jerry Butler saying, there are three things I thought I'd never lived to see. The United States in another war, Curtis Mayfield in a wheelchair, and the impressions in the Rock and Roll Hall of <laughs> Fame. <laughs> wow. I'm
4: so proud of being
0: We usually conclude our episodes with just mentioning a few of the articles that have gone into the RBP library, Andy. So if um, Mark's going to start us off, and if you hear anything that triggers some memory or opinion, just uh, stick your hand up and jump in. But Mark, what what have you what have you added lately?
3: Yeah, well, last week a really brilliant Maureen Cleave interview with Ray Davis of the Kinks, Evening Standard, nineteen sixty five. I mean. I rave about Maureen Cleave regularly. I will rave once again. She gets answers. She gets stuff out of people that no one else was getting at the time. And he says, I had what I wanted, whatever it cost. My mother didn't work until I wanted a guitar. I got it to my 13th birthday and I thought everyone would come around and hear it and I'd have all the glory. And then one of my sisters died that day. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to put it having an interview, you know. Yeah. He says, I'm not tied to my parents. You can be attached to somebody for 50 years, and when they die, you realize you hate them. I think that's worse. I really appreciate my parents. I, this is the tenor of the whole interview, and this is 1965. You know, wow. once again, I'll say that rock and roll journalism wasn't invented by men, American men, in 1967. I thought she was going to, Mark, I thought she was going to ask him his favorite color. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. well, exactly. That's the idea that everyone has. I mean, I, I talk about this a lot. I won't bore our listeners. But but there's some really great writing by women in the English pop press in the 60s. It's just simple as that. Dave Marsh and Cream, 1970, interviewing John McLaughlin. Very interesting time to be interviewing John McLaughlin. I believe he'd probably just been in the studio doing Bitches Brew with Miles Davis. It's pre his new phase, though there's an inkling of that here. See, he says... Miles has always knocked me out. His music is to the point of vastest understatement. He's a supreme artist like Picasso. He can say so much with one little line. It's miraculous how he does, but he does. He's a very disciplined person. He can really raise the feeling in the studio. He'll come in at 10 a.m., raise the spirit. He'll really abuse you. He's a great psychologist. Now he goes into his stuff. Now I'm on a path. Before I was going unguided. I always played on intuition. Now I played on... Guided intuition. I realize now that we don't do it. I don't do anything. The Supreme does everything. When I play, it's bad. When I let God play, it's incredible. I have to let God play constantly. So that's Him moving towards the Maha Vishnu. Everyone should check out McLaughlin's playing on those on those records with Duffy Power. Oh yeah, oh, really? Are They're they available because that must be in. Some there are, of his, uh... there's
1: tracks on YouTube.
3: Right, must be some of his earliest recordings. reviewing Hotel California for Cream, 1977. Check out their narcissistic self-tribute, a fold-up photo of five of the most macho lady killers alive. Love us, we're tortured. It's the last resort. When these guys sing about God, I wonder who they think he is. Can you honestly search for a higher being where most of your time is taken up, setting yourself up to be worshipped? It's a scathing review of of that album. The Eagles,
1: saw them support Spooky Tooth. Oh, did you? Bloody at, a theater hell. In da- at the State <laughs> Theatre in downtown Minneapolis. <laughs> Jesus, early days. <laughs> yeah.
3: Carly Simon interviewed by James Hunter for Music and Sound Output 1984. I'm very self-conscious about writing about the upper middle class and New York in the 30s and 40s. Get it's me, the rich kid thing. And this guy, he said, this is someone she's talking about, but that's who you are. So I thought, well, fuck it, you're right. I've never been one to pretend I'm from a mining family, which is <laughs> <laughs> good. Brian Ferry, this week, to Jim Farber, Rolling Stone, 79. Whenever I'm with the upper-class jet setters, I feel totally out of place. I have a set of values they don't have. I still know what it, is, I, what it is to have nothing. I'm still a street person for all the look of sophistication. I wonder what Willie DeVille would make of that.
1: That's pretty interesting, Mark, since I, to my recollection, Ferry has voted Tory like most of his adult yes. life. Yes. Which is, you know, which, which is quite, in in my view, from this side of the Atlantic, you know, it doesn't jive somehow with the self image he's describing yeah, there. Absolutely,
3: absolutely. He also then doesn't say most of my male friends are gay. All two of them, so I've been very aware of the gay thing. A lot of people thought I was. It's true. They'd say those flashy girls you always have around her, sure, are a good front. Um, I don't know if I, I don't remember anyone really particularly thinking he was gay. Anyway, that's my lot. Jasper, what have you got?
2: I've just got two things I'll mention quickly. Thanks for those, Mark. First of which is Scissor Sisters. A review of the album Scissor Sisters by Jude Rogers in The Word in March 2004. Nice short review. If first impressions were king, I would hate the Scissor Sisters, she writes. Trussed up in artfully deconstructed clobber, recasting outmoded tunes in hip postmodern swagger, these avant-garde New York City chancers can put you off before you've even got past the press shots. Slipping on their much-touted debut album, though, something strange occurred. Despite gritted teeth... The toes started to twitch, the head jerk, and a grin curled the corners of my mouth. Damn music for doing this to one's refined sensibilities. (laughs) I just love it. And, you know, she goes and just each track gets a short kind of summary. But uh, at the end, she writes, Pride swallowed, scrubbed up pastiches of Magic FM fodder can be a good thing. And when the discotheque dirtiness of Filthy Gorgeous and a song called Hurrah, Tits on the radio also come into play. What is there not to love?
3: That's great. I mean, in a way, sisters, for me, they resonate from the early 80s New York scenes, sort of the Roxy and those sorts of places. They kind of culturally kind of come out of that. Mm,
2: I, think, I think that's about right. You know, it's very, very camp very gay, very kind of disco, but disco. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in a kind of sleazy way, but in a, in a, in an attractively sleazy yeah, way. Yeah.
3: And you say. know, they got, you know, they got Kid Creole records in their record collection. <laughs> you know. I
2: think that's quite
0: likely. <laughs> but, I, I love that album still. Me too. I have to say. Me too. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. I, I think take your mama. is like the best record Elton John never made <laughs> I mean, and probably better than any record Elton John ever made. <laughs>
2: Well, it's funny you say that because Jude Rogers says the chug of early Elton John and Hall and Oates racing okay. through Take Your Mama Out <laughs> yeah. references exactly that. On
4: some cheap we'll let the, all roll out.
2: the other thing I wanted to mention was a, a long interview with Bootsy Collins by Julian Marzalek in the Quietus in November 2017, and it's there. Baker's Dozen, where they get an artist to nominate their 13 favorite LPs, and Bootsy's 13 favorite LPs are about as great as as you'd expect. He starts with one of his own, Worldwide Funk. (laughs) Is that his new album, by any chance, at that point? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not not sure. But he says, there's a gap between albums because it isn't simply making music. It's about making something special. It's a special selection of universal ideas. It's not just coming up with songs. I've got songs all day long, but if I ain't given what to do, then I can't do it. But this album was given to me from the universe. I keep my ears open. And that's why you've got like the mothership and all of that, because my ears and my eyes and my receivers were open, but you can't do that week after week, year after year. You have to wait till it comes to you. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for everybody else. And that's a good thing. I hate to just play with myself. <laughs> um, you Rest know, he's just great throughout
1: such a great spirit that he's one of his five
2: basically five thousand words of of Bootsy of Bootsy talking about his favorite records is well 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 worth a read so I just wanted to shout that one out
3: any particular albums leap out at you that he he liked which surprised you for example
2: Uh, it's all I mean you know he liked Kind of the stuff that you would, I think, expect. I mean, Lonnie Max, the wham of that Memphis man. Yeah, Yeah, that's a
0: great selection.
2: Is is a great selection. I mean, of course, Sly is in there. Jimmy's in there. Miles is in there. Miles is in there. Blood, sweat and tears. James Brown.
3: No platform for David <laughs>
0: yeah Clayton the Thomas. thumbs
3: down all runs
2: <laughs> <laughs> James Brown, l van dyke, the counts the ohio players that 's kind of the yeah, yeah. the list um other than his own records in parliament, and you know he's just great throughout, so yeah. so Lovely. check that one out
0: beautiful, well, I think we're coming to the end of the episode andy what are you what are you up to at the moment what you, what's keeping you musically busy in 2024?
1: i don't know barney i'm i'm not really uh engaged in writing anything of consequence at this at the present time. I still listen to music all the time and I still buy records. You know, Good I'm you. kind of the in, inveterate bargain hunter. I, I don't <laughs> I, I I'm still drawn to the experience of bending down to rummage through the boxes under the bins. You know? <laughs> looking looking for that two dollar gold.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: uh, which uh, sometimes you can find, you know. Yeah, so sometimes, you, sometimes w- you what can. we call a, a crate digger is the crate the digger. Uh, yeah. Crate digging. Yeah, <laughs> good.
0: <laughs> well, keep it up, keep it up, yes. Andy. The thank music you. needs you.
1: I, I wouldn't say I was going to that many gigs, but I do. I do sometimes, you know, make it out to a gig. Well,
0: listen. Thank you so much for joining us uh, in this episode. It's been thank really lovely. Gentlemen. Lovely speaking it's with been you. Great, great fun. Great, great Been a pleasure to, to start the year with you. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with Penelope Spheris, director of the Decline of Western Civilization films, and of course Wayne's World. So we're looking forward to that.
3: I've got a couple of good Spheris quotes to, when I talk oh. to talk about what's, what's new in the library. A very interesting
0: Rich Tarrington piece I've just proved. Oh, good. Which, which will be, hopefully be up in time for that. Fantastic, <laughs> wonderful. Well, so uh, again, thanks so much for joining us, Andy, and um, have a great year. Hope to see you at some point in there. Uh, if you're coming to the UK, come and see us.
1: Thank you, Barney. Thank you, Mark. Yes. Thank you, Jasper. Great to see you. Bye. 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 Bye.
4: Hallelujah. They call me Casper. Not the friendly ghost, but the Holy Ghost.
2: That concludes episode 168 of the Rock Track Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest, Andy Schwartz. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Mm, glory be to
4: the one who knows what the fronts about, y'all.